Now when you actually do the calculations, going to Europe for a month, you can do it for $2,000. So often mm-hmm. what happens is that the cost of our dreams is a lot lower than the imaginary figure we seem to have in our heads. You know, we seem to have this thing in our head, okay, I'm going to work till so-and-so age, get so much money, then I will follow my dreams. You can follow your dreams now. This is episode number 87 of The Inspiring Talk with award-winning comedian Papa Sizé. Welcome guys to The Inspiring Talk. My name is Bijay Gautam. I'm host for this show. Each week I interview today's most successful and inspiring personalities to help you realize your inner potential. On this episode of The Inspiring Talk, I speak with Papa Sizé. He's an award-winning international stand-up comedian. He has performed over 2,000 shows in over 25 countries across the world. Forbes magazine called him the global face of Indian stand-up and Harvard Business Review called him one of the most influential comedians around the world. He is one of the pioneers of comedy in India and was instrumental in setting up the English language comedy socket in the country. As a corporate coach, he has trained over 50 blue chip companies globally. He consults brands on concepts and content strategy. His maiden book, an autobiography titled Naked, was launched earlier this year, and I loved reading that book. I invited CJ to talk about his journey from the streets of Calcutta to performing on some of the world's biggest comedy events. Following your passion, power of vulnerability, and a lot more. This episode will deeply inspire you as Papa CJ's story is one of the most inspiring stories I have come across recently. Without further ado, let me welcome Papa CJ. Welcome back inside this episode, guys. I'm super excited to be chatting with Papa Sizé. Papa Sizé, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Vijay. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's really an honor to have you here on the show. And I have read your book, Naked. You have bared it all. You have shared it all. And uh, obviously, you know, I have heard about you. I have seen your shows for a while now and following you. And uh, now getting this opportunity to talk to you, it's really a privilege to have this conversation with you. And uh, after I completed reading your book, I was left inspired by the story. And uh, also, I felt that, you know what, this is not a story of how good I am or how kick-ass I am or how, you know, badass celebrity I am or whatever. But it's like, I'm just the guy just like each one of you. And at no point in your book, I felt that, you know, you were, there is no difference between, you know, normal people who is reading the book. And when they look at you and they can see like, oh, okay, he is just the guy next door. He is not somebody would, you know, feel that, okay, there's a huge gap between you and me kind of thing, which, which I think is, uh, you want to say something on that? Thanks a lot. That's really good for my self-esteem. <laughs> basically, what you said, <laughs> I, I read your book and basically you're pretty shit. And that's inspiring for me because I think, well, if he's shit and he can get to where he is, 
I can kick his ass and I mean I can change the world. <laughs> and I think my, that's what you wanted to do with the book, right? That's exactly how I like to inspire people. I like to tell them that listen, I am the bottom of the barrel and therefore mm-hmm. I can make you feel good about yourself. So after reading your book I realized that you know you are really close uh, with your father and you have mentioned in you know some of the interviews in the past as well that your parents are the rock stars and not the ordinary parents uh you know that the normal indian people have because they have allowed you to go and experiment with a lot of things that you wanted to do in your life what are the two biggest traits that you have kind of got from your dad so i have got traits from both my parents the fact yeah. is i have always wanted to be like my father but i am exactly like my mother and it's quite interesting in that the journey of adventure for me and stand up comedy started at almost the same time as the journey of adventure for my parents i believe that the two of them bloomed quite late in life so in 2004 i started doing stand up comedy and in 2004 as a family we did our first trek to mount everest space camp now in the last 15 years my father is now uh, in his early 70s my mom is in her late 60s my two parents have climbed mount kilimanjaro they have trekked up to everest space camp they have done annapurna base camp my mother wow. has learned how to fly ultralight aircrafts my father has rafted down the zanskar river he has trekked all the way to kailash mansarovar So I was very fortunate to have parents who take risks themselves which is why they were comfortable with me taking a risk as well also mm-hmm. I was always financially independent even when I was doing comedy I was on my own savings I had my own bank balance when I went broke I took a, a job in the day I used to work in the day and perform at night this is when I was in London so I was always supporting myself in terms of the two traits that I have picked up from them so both my parents are quite different in that My mother would be your textbook stand-up comedian in that she projects herself she's very expressive she's in your face she will tell you the jokes whereas my father is a storyteller so he's mm-hmm. the kind of person who will whisper so everyone will keep quiet and shut up and try and focus just so they can lean in and listen so I'd like to think that those are two different traits that I have picked up from them uh, but I'm definitely closer to my mom's side of it than my dad's So how was it like uh, growing up as a kid I read the book for but for the better understanding of the audience like can you give a quickly a glimpse into your life as a kid and you know how was it for you growing up Well I shuffled between two places so I grew up in Calcutta which is a city that will always be home to me but I spent 9 years in a boarding school in Himachal Pradesh So both places were fantastic I mean I loved Calcutta because The beauty of Calcutta was that all of our parents worked for some company or the other. So there was a level of uh, equality like nobody knew I didn't know whose father did what or how much money anybody earned. You know we were all in the same places we played in the same playground. So there was no real differentiation. Uh, whereas in a city mm-hmm. like Delhi where I have been for the last uh, 12 years I mean my understanding of Delhi is that a lot of people here are either into politics or into business. so they're either kicking somebody's ass or they're kissing somebody's ass so when you meet them they try and figure out where you are on that spectrum whether you're supposed to kick or whether you're supposed to kiss and fortunately for me i don't fit into that spectrum so and boarding school on the other hand was also wonderful i mean i was in a school with 750 boys and girls from all over the country we all wore the same uniforms again nobody knew whose dad did what 
and it was mm-hmm. great because in addition to academics you could take part in so many other extracurricular activities right i mean i was in the school band i played a musical instrument i did clay modeling modeling i did carpentry i acted in school plays there was lots to do and because it was a coeducational school there were extra co-curricular activities as well which i shall not go into for the for the podcast <laughs> Yeah so after you completed your school and uh, it was pretty i wouldn't say it was uh, pretty an average uh, you know schooling life or maybe not so average for you for the kind of stuff uh, you know that you have done the school and you were born leader would you like to call that to yourself like because you were leading uh, you were head boy for your school i think it's a bit arrogant to say born leader uh, <laughs> but i uh, i think if i did something i'd like to try and do it as best as i possibly could So I tried to participate in a lot of activities. I played lots of sports. Where did that trait came from? Like you know, whatever I try, I try to be best at what I do. Where did that trait come from? If you go back and reflect on your life, it kind of traces it back. I think partly nature, partly nurture. I mean, one, it's just inbuilt in me. If I'm doing something, I'd, I'd I'd like to try and do it to the best of my ability. But also, ever since I was a kid, my father always said, "Listen, if you want to be a sweeper, you be a sweeper, but try and be the best sweeper in the world." So I think uh, a little bit of that came from family as well. But yeah, as far as leadership okay. is concerned, I I mean I just enjoyed doing what I did. I loved sport. I was uh, very fit as a kid and uh, it was great to be involved in these team sports and try and do as best as possible. So one of the interesting thing that kind of uh, fascinated me and which uh, was after, you know, you have done your college and then we're applying for the college Uh, yeah. in the London and then you applied for the M- MBA and yeah. uh, Oxford says that you are too young. to come here and uh yeah. you know join our mba program wait for one year or two year right wait for two years and then we'll you know let you in yeah a lot of people you know at the first rejection would give up saying that okay they have said no but yeah. you wouldn't give up and wouldn't take no as an answer in the first attempt yeah i mean i'm i don't that's been a trait that's been with me all my life i don't believe in even when i got through to business school when i used to apply for jobs the second i got a rejection letter i used to reapply to the same company again you know some of them wrote back saying thank you for reapplying we still don't want you but some of them <laughs> on the second time uh, actually did call me for interviews so it's just one of those things that uh, i think i have a bit of a thick skin you know mm-hmm. so it's one of those try 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 at some point maybe the law of averages will kick in and, and you make it and i would like to talk um, you know in more detail about the the thick skin bit because that will come later you know once you started doing comedy and stuff like that so you went to london you did mba and then you know you discovered comedy how did you discover comedy and uh, can you share a little bit about like what you did in london after you went to oxford and uh, okay, uh, and share so, with the listeners what you did there yeah so i did my mba from the university of oxford which is a one year program i got a job with ibm in their consulting practice This was the year 2000 when the whole dot com crash happened and I spent 3 or 4 years at IBM but those were terrible years because I wasn't really engaged in any projects uh, the problem was I was a 23 year old MBA from Oxford I was the youngest MBA uh, on the Oxford program in fact the oldest guy on my course was older than my father at that point so for an organization that was employing me I didn't have enough work experience to be where normal MBAs would be you know where a 29 year old would be and yet i wasn't at an analyst level either because uh, i had an mba in the bag so it was very difficult for them to place me as well and because there wasn't much work around uh, in consulting they say you're you're on the bench or on the beach 
you know, a lot of my time I was quote unquote working from home. I wasn't really working. I was just sitting at home watching television. Uh, so my dreams of corporate success were destroyed slowly over three years. And mm-hmm. then eventually I took a sabbatical from work. I took a one year sabbatical. Uh, I managed to negotiate a little bit of pay during that sabbatical. And in that year off, I went to the Edinburgh Festival and I saw these guys doing stand-up for the first time. And I thought, this is the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, there was a guy on stage with a beer in one hand, a microphone in the other, and he was just having fun. And that was his job. I thought, wow, man, this is like the most amazing thing in the world. I've got to try it. So, uh, three months later, I got on stage for the first time uh, on a boat on the River Thames in southeast London. Uh, had a reasonably decent gig. Went on to do 250 shows in my first 10 months. Uh, chucked up my job with IBM. Wow. After my first 250 gigs, I went broke. So I took a job in a recruitment firm. I used to work in the day, perform at night. Uh, then one of my clients was an executive coaching outfit. So I qualified as a coach with them. So I would balance the coaching, which would give me some money. And that would finance my comedy habit. And I ended up doing about 700 shows in my first three years uh, in the UK. But I have to tell you this. When I started doing stand-up, I was debating between doing stand-up comedy and doing a bartending course. But Mm -hmm. that bartending course that I looked at, they only taught us how to mix the drinks. They didn't teach us how to juggle the glasses. And I remember (laughs) thinking to myself, well, if I can't juggle the glasses, I'm never going to get laid. That's why I took up stand-up comedy, to get laid. And that was 15 Mm. years ago, Vijay. And in the last 15 years, I can't tell you how many times. How many times I wish I had taken that bartending course? Yeah. So one of the things, you know, that you have done was taking that sabbatical because you felt that you were not challenged enough and, uh, you know, you were not quite enjoying what you were doing at your job. And then you took that sabbatical. So for the people who are listening to this podcast and who are on the cusp of or maybe, maybe who are thinking that, you know, what whatever job that I'm doing or wherever I am today and I absolutely hate it and I want to figure out path for myself and I have no idea what I want to do next, right? So what would be your suggestion to people who are uh, looking at taking sabbatical, how they can go about preparing for it because I don't want after listening to our podcast, somebody going and, you know, quitting their show tomorrow morning because Papa CJ told her to take uh, sabbatical. (laughs) There are two things. You have to realize that it's very fashionable to say, follow your passion, right? True. Yes, it is very important to feed the soul, but it's very important to feed the stomach as well. So I think that's the balance you need to find. You need to make sure that you are financially independent. The only independence is financial independence. Now, there are two pieces of advice I normally give people who come to me. The first question I ask them is that if you had a billion dollars in the bank, what would you do? How would you spend your time? Right? Not what would you buy? So one of the common answers I used to get, uh, this is of course before coronavirus, was that I'll travel. So I said, okay, where will you travel? I will go to Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. How long will you go for? I'll go for one month. Now, when you actually do the calculations, right? I remember there was a book, a Frommer's book saying Europe on $50 a day, right? Actually, going to Europe for a month, you can do it for $2,000. So often mm-hmm. what happens is that the cost of our dreams is a lot lower then the imaginary figure we seem to have in our heads. You know, we seem to have this thing in our head, okay, I'm going to work till so-and-so age, get so much money, then I will follow my dreams. 
you can follow your dreams now. The second thing I do, and I do this with a lot of senior professionals as well, who often end up actually quitting their jobs after this conversation, <laughs> is I ask them, okay, do a mathematical calculation, actual numbers of how much money you need from today until the day you die. Calculate everything. Calculate rent, calculate medical costs, calculate holidays, calculate children's education. Now, let's say you've got a number that is 100, right? Now, I say, okay, fine. Now, subtract how much you already have from that. If you count your assets and what you already have in the bank. Let's say you've got 50, you come down to 50. Now, say, okay, how many years are there left for you to work? Now, you say, okay, I have, let's say, 10 years left to work. That means you need to earn 5 a year. Most people find that they're actually earning 10 or 15 a year already. But they're killing themselves for 15 hours a day, 6 days a week. Why are you killing yourself then? Right? Where you can comfortably get away working a lot less and following your dreams and doing whatever it is that you want to do. So I think it's very important to find that balance between feeding the stomach and feeding the soul. But you need to put those actual numbers down sometimes. Because that can help you plan your life much better. That's a very practical you know, answer that uh, anyone has ever given when it comes to you know, following the dream. Otherwise, you will see a lot of people talking about, you know, from the perspective of go ahead and you know, quit your job or figure out what you want to do. But I think that's the most practical and maybe the most honest answer that you know, uh, somebody can give that just go and figure out the cost of your dream and then see where you stand today. I think that's also this one approach. I mean, there are multiple ways you can look at it. You know, one of the most wonderful sayings yeah. I like is that uh, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And with a lot of creative professions, as they say, leap and the net will appear. Right? Don't go jump off a building. But in terms of creativity, mm -hmm. uh, nobody is confident yeah. when you start. You've just got to take that jump. And things True. tend to happen on their own. So those three years when you were, uh, you know, talking about so many numbers of shows that you did was definitely not the best time of your life. Can you take us there and uh, share with us, uh, you know, that phase of life when you have taken sabbatical from your job and you yeah. were doing gigs almost every single night for a year on the first year of trying to pursue your passion? So I did 700 shows in the UK. Out of those, I would say 300 were in London. And the London gigs would be small shows, 10 people, 15 people with 10 comics. The out-of-town shows, you sometimes had 300 people who showed up. You know, they were in small towns across the UK. Now, for these shows, I would have to travel for, on average, four hours one way to perform for a maximum duration of 10 minutes. Right? I wasn't getting paid for most of the shows. I had to pay the driver my share of petrol. Now, there were two things that were fantastic about it. One was I was getting to perform in front of large audiences. And two, the most important thing was for 400 shows, I spent between six to eight hours in a car with two other comedians who had been doing stand-up comedy for between 10 and 20 years. Right? So I would see how they prepared their shows. I would see how they analyzed their shows afterwards. I would literally beg them saying, please, can you watch me perform? Give me some feedback. I have spent over 2,000 hours in cars with these comedians. That is comedy university right there. There is no substitute for that kind of mentorship. Uh, so those were the two upsides. The downsides, of course, was that, I mean, the kind of life I was living, I would wake up at, say, 10, 30, 11 in the morning. 
cook one meal for myself at two in the afternoon. I would get to some some comedian's car at four in the afternoon to drive to some city in the UK. I would get to this gig. Uh, I was nervous. I wouldn't eat. Uh, I would get dropped off on the outskirts of London at two thirty in the morning. I would pay the driver my share of petrol. I couldn't afford a taxi. I would change three different buses, sometimes waiting for forty five minutes in cold London winter, and I would get home at about four thirty five in the morning. I did this every single day for an entire year. At the end of that year. I had no money, no friends, no relationship, and no life. But every single comedy club owner in the country knew my name, so that's where it kind of started from. I think that's super important, right? So the most important lesson out there, what I can see from what you have done, is number one, you threw yourself out there and surrounded yourself with people who were kind of living the dream that you wanted to live one day, and you were, you know, learning from them constantly. And as you mentioned, like that was the comedy university that you went. and also at the same time you were learning the craft and picking up the skills and tools that you know would help you in the future and you were putting your head down by the way you were in no hurry to get that fame you know bj i think ignorance was also a large part of the success ignorance because large part of the reason for whatever little success i may have got because i didn't you're right i it was my passion i loved it and my head was down i didn't really look up because I didn't know how difficult this profession was and how low the odds were of actually succeeding right and I was not going around with comedians who were living my dream right they were superbly talented people some of them were wonderful people but my dream should not be for the next 20 years of my life to be sitting in a car for 8 hours a day to travel to some city to make 20 pounds or 50 pounds or 100 pounds that is a very difficult life you know but i hadn't True. even thought about it at that point and so i focused on the craft you know i think it's a uh, nowadays often what tends to happen is people try and learn the tricks of the trade before they learn the trade uh, but it's very important to learn the trade first mm. i think that's a really powerful suggestion right there so i would like to read a line from your book at the same phase of your life where you have written i'll never forget the night when i stood freezing for over an hour at a bus stop in south london at 3 am soaking wet from the rain and questioning the sense of it all do you have any message to people who are there soaking wet on a midnight rain questioning the sense of it all i remember this specific night i had gone to do a show in a place called durham which is about a 5 hour drive from london i spent 5 hours one way in a car with a deaf comedian so you can imagine the conversation wasn't exactly awesome and we got there and durham university had exams so only three people came to the show we still performed because we had driven 5 hours for that drove all the way back i got dropped off very far from where i lived i was exhausted i was tired i was cold i was wet i waited for an hour for a bus to come no bus came i called up a taxi company the taxi company quoted me 22 pounds to drop me home i did not have that money to pay the cab and that was the only ever time i still remember i was shivering in the doorway of a shop and thinking to myself what am i doing and maybe another half an hour later a bus came i got on that changed two more buses got back home at about maybe 5:30 in the morning and sure enough the next day i got up and went on to my next gig But yeah, I specifically remember that night. 
But shit happens, man. I think it happens to all of us. We always hit a point where you hit rock bottom. But the beautiful part about hitting rock bottom is that only way to go from there is up. So, yeah. so is there any message for people who are soaking their out in the wet, in the midnight rain, somebody who might be listening to this? Yeah, sure. Invest in an umbrella. <laughs> well, that's the answer from Papa Cize. But on the stage, we want answer from the Papa Cize off the stage. <laughs> well, I think the umbrella is probably a metaphor, right? So what mm-hmm. are the things that make you hit rock bottom? And how can you protect yourself against that? So an umbrella in this case would be maybe some money in the bank, maybe a job that you do on the side. I remember after one year of stand-up, I went broke and I used to work in a recruitment job in the day. Now, I may have spent eight hours a day in that job and only 10 minutes on stage at night. But in my head, I was doing stand-up comedy and the job was on the side, right? So the amount of time you spend on something doesn't mean that is what you give your primary importance to. So that is important to keep in mind. In my head, I was a stand-up comedian and the job was only until I could get to a point where I didn't need to do it anymore. Nice. So there are a lot of people who feel, you know, they really don't fit in on a lot of, let's say, on the places that they want to pursue their uh, dreams, especially when they are starting out because they have this huge burden of their backstory or the background they come from. Have you felt that way that, you know, you do not fit in? And how did you go about that? You know, the thing about going to a boarding school is that you learn to fit in anywhere, but you don't necessarily feel like you belong. But I don't really place a lot of importance to fitting in. Right? Why do you need to fit in? I don't think anyone who uh, has really changed the world or achieved any great magnitude of success ever sort of followed the crowd of fit in. Think of any leader you want to, yeah, whether it was, uh, I mean, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, whoever you might think to think of, they didn't get to where they were by fitting in. They decided they wanted to do something different. They wanted to change things. So fitting in is not important. You've got to do what feels natural to you. And what's most important is that you need to be authentic, right? That is, if there's one thing I have learned from stand-up comedy, I always say that it is an outward expression of an inward journey. The journey is always inward. Eventually, you have to get to a point where you're comfortable being in your own skin, where you're saying, this is my truth. If it works for you, fine. If it doesn't work for you, also fine. Because if you're constantly trying to be somebody else, to please the people in the room, whether it's in your job or in your life or whatever it is, you're never going to be comfortable in your own skin and you will never be happy, right? That happens with stand-up as well. Initially, you're trying to please everybody. But you can't change your point of view or your values depending on who's in the room because those people will keep changing. So how if you change all the time, what do you stand for? So Eventually, you've got to be who you are and your audience will find you. The same thing applies to life as well. You need to be comfortable being who you are. You don't need to apologize for it at all. And your kind of people will find you. And that's where your sense of belonging will come from. But it is very important to be authentic and to be true to yourself. How does one does that? Because a lot of people, you know, becoming authentic and becoming self, but where does one begin? Like becoming self or becoming authentic with themselves? Any uh, language restrictions on your podcast? Go ahead. (laughs) Just stop giving a fuck. Right. I mean, there is this philosophy. I think it gets, uh, it's better with age, right? Uh, There is this philosophy. I don't know if, I haven't read Mark Hansen's book. I don't know if he says that. 
but i have this uh, bag of fucks philosophy i believe that we are all born with a bag of fucks and over the course of life as you keep giving a fuck about something or the other you just have less fucks left to give so as you grow older you have to be more choosy about the things you do give a fuck about and eventually you just run out of fucks and you attain nirvana at least that's my philosophy but see i think as long as you are not uh, you're not hurting somebody else and you're just being authentic to yourself that's fine so what are the things that you have learned about rejection and failures from comedy that you didn't know earlier doesn't really matter yeah i think it makes you stronger i mean it's like the movie rocky yeah it's it's not about how hard you hit it's about uh, you getting hit and being able to keep getting back up that's just a metaphor for life it's the same thing with comedy it's the same thing with everything in life i mean if you can't handle rejection comedy is definitely not for you and the thing is you know the problem is that with social media and stuff we have started to live in a world of external validation you know everything is about how many likes and retweets and shares and it's about the public perception but the journey has to be inward your journey of growth has to be inward and once you decide to focus on that then it really doesn't matter like they say either you succeed or you learn there is no such thing as failure if you haven't succeeded you have learned so you don't start from zero you start from experience and then you build on that i mean as comedians when we started performing we would record every single show we would listen back to it so that the stuff that went well was fine but you learn nothing from a good show if i do a good show i walk off stage thinking boss and the king in a bad show like i get feedback from my audience every 15 seconds if i cannot adapt on the spot i mean there is nothing worse than trying to make people laugh and getting 5 minutes of silence i have to think to myself on the way back to my home if i'm ever again in the same country with a similar audience of a similar background what can i do differently so i don't look like a fool so for us as comedians failure is the only way to grow you can only grow by failing and continuously failing again and again and again in different circumstances learning from that so you don't fail in that circumstance again and that's what makes you better what you do cool so now i want to talk about something really important it's about vulnerability and uh, because you know you have shared your story and when you really sh- peel off the layers and uh, take off all the layers and show it to the world and which is really by the way very very difficult thing for a lot of people to do right so and when you do that then you know you can have a lot of people being more empathetic towards you and also at the same time you also you know as we mentioned about you stop giving you know damn about what other things about you right how difficult is it for somebody to become vulnerable and how does one begin that journey of vulnerability i think it's not something you can rush it's something that each person kind of grows into i think there is great strength and power that comes from so with my book as which is based on a show that is also called naked i believe that as human beings we build walls around ourselves that hide our deepest hopes and fears and desires now in the True. book as well as the show one brick at a time i remove these walls and i'm exposing myself with all my vulnerability or my pain now it is terrifying yet exhilarating at the same time because by the end of it while you are completely naked you are also completely free right you have nothing left to hide your truth is out there and that's extremely liberating and it allows you to build on that 
and not only that i believe it is extremely cathartic to other people as well because when they read the book or when they watch the show i'm using the vehicle of my life to talk about the human experience at some point somebody who's reading or watching is not thinking that i'm talking about my life they think i'm talking about theirs because they have gone through similar experiences they have felt similar emotions and for many of them they are able to look at it and say listen if this guy can go through this stuff and he can laugh about it and be positive and get on with his life what's stopping me so i find that at least what i've heard from my audiences that it's extremely empowering for them as well so i think being naked does give you an immense sense of freedom and strength you know it's perfectly okay to say that you're not okay or that you've been through a hard time nobody's perfect and that's part of the human experience so cherish it you know i think it was a i don't remember whether it was helen mirren who said in one of the oscar speeches she said take your broken heart and turn it into art some of the greatest art is born out of pain so instead of looking at the negative see how you can channelize that pain and hurt into something beautiful either for yourself or for other people what was the journey like for you when you started sharing your stories like as you mentioned you know it was scary at the same time liberating and i'm sure you didn't went out to share the entire story at once right you started sharing one at a time so how would you recommend that especially for the people you know who have never shared the story and you any rightly mentioned about the deepest fear hope and desire that people have and then how you know one can start getting on that path of sharing those out well there's an old saying how do you eat an elephant right and the answer is one bite at a time so start from a space where you feel comfortable around people who you feel comfortable with and uh, slowly you'll find that as you start to share other people will start to share as well and you will find that you are not alone in how you feel and uh, that is a beautiful feeling and not only will you feel more liberated more comfortable in being yourself with more people but you will also be able to form beautiful connections and bonds with people because you have shared your vulnerabilities together and uh, you will find that people will respect you a lot for that so you are saying when you are vulnerable with people you build more stronger connection absolutely because when you are able to open yourself up to them and when people see that you are being authentic they will not need to put up a show in front of you and they will be comfortable opening themselves up in front of you and that's where that bond is formed beautiful so now when you look back at your life after you know all the interesting or you know all all the amazing things that you have been through in your life so do you have any regrets for the life that you have lived or anything that you wish you could have done or anything that you wish you could have done differently or maybe i don't look at life that way i think every experience shapes you and uh, it's a very cliche answer but it's what brings you to it's what what's brought me to where i am today and uh, i can't complain really. i'm extremely grateful so what did you learn about communication from comedy I think the most important thing about communication is when you talk to an audience the first question you need to ask is one what do you want your audience to think feel or do as a result of what you're saying but that's the second question the first question you need to ask is why should they give a shit why do they care about what you're saying it has to mean something to them that's the question you need to answer first right if you can customize what you're saying to the audience so that it means something to them nobody cares about you they care about themselves right 
So if you can answer the question as to why what you're saying matters to them and customize what you have to say, then you have something to offer. And if you can find something that your audience can emotionally connect with, that is where the magic is. All right. So now I have this round called enlightening round where I'm going to ask you some questions. You can call this a rapid fire round. So Papas, what inspires you to do everything that you do? I am deeply driven by human connection. Nothing gives me greater joy than to be able to uplift people. Whether it is through laughter and my comedy, whether it is my happiness project where I go and perform for free in hospitals and, uh, and people's homes who are unwell, whether it is motivational speaking at colleges to be able to equip people to, to realize their dreams, uh, whether it's my corporate trading stuff, I am driven by being able to uplift people. They say that happiness is found where three things meet. Pleasure, challenge and meaning. So for me, I'm always looking for that third bit. You know, where is the meaning in my work? And that is what motivates me. That's what inspires me. If you have to look back at your journey and attribute all your success to one daily habit of yours, what would that be? I would say, at least in my profession, your success is 1% talent, 4% hard work and 95% luck. But uh, I think more than anything else, I believe that success in most professions comes down to two or three things. Most people can do the job. It's relationships and networks and your personal brand. Right? So all I can say is just be good to people. I strongly believe in this whole in, in karma. Right? If you can be good to people, if you can genuinely be nice, it comes around because people will work with you because they want to work with you. So just be good to people. Try not to say anything negative about anyone anywhere. Not in public at least. Do you read often? No, I'm not a big reader. Okay. So any book that you'd like to recommend to people listening to this other than I, Naked? I would rather recommend that people go and watch live stand-up comedy. I mean, especially now after coronavirus, I think a lot of people in my profession will take a big hit uh, from a financial point of view. So try and support people in live art forms. Because remember that while you have been locked up in your houses during all this coronavirus and whatever else. It is people in the arts who have actually helped you get through. What you're watching on Netflix is somebody in an arts profession, whether you're watching stand-up or whatever else it might be. So the next time you go out there, don't ask for a free ticket, don't ask for a free pass, don't ask for a discount. Support people in the artistic professions, including books, buy books in my office. All right, so I have one last question left for you. But before I ask uh, that question to you, people would like to get in touch with you. What is the best possible way to reach out to you and maybe, you know, come and see one of your shows? What is the best uh, possible way? Website is papacj.com. I'm on every social media at papacj on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And yeah, if uh, I don't think they're delivering my physical book nowadays. But the ebook of Naked is available on Amazon. I can't uh, recommend this book enough because, you know, there are a lot to learn from Papa Cizé's journey and uh, he exploring his own life and finding out, you know, his passion and going full out and then making a career out of that. There's a lot to learn from his journey. Just go and check that out. I completed reading and I was blown away by, you know, how simple and how easy to follow. And at the same time, how much you can learn from the book. So I can't recommend that enough. So here's the last question for you. So now that you know you have um, done your live shows in over 20 countries and spoken in a lot of large stages, imagine that you are standing on the stage, which is the largest stadium that has ever been built in the history of the world. And there are millions and millions of people out there on that stage. 
and every single seat is occupied, by the way. And you have been given only one minute of time to share the most important lesson that you have learned in your life. What would be your message? I would say to be compassionate. If you can be compassionate and live your life with compassion, it's fantastic. Also, there's a quote that I really like, which is, don't let the world change your smile. Let your smile change the world. So that's one I always like to share. Be compassionate. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Vijay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inspiring Talk podcast. The show is topping charts on Apple Podcasts and some other platforms. Thank you so much for all the love and support. It means a lot to me. And I would really appreciate if you can leave a nice review for the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. I hope you learned something or got some inspiration. If you did, take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your Instagram. And don't forget to tag me at the rate Vijay Speaks. You can access the show notes of this episode by visiting theinspiringtalk.com forward slash 8787. Thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you in the next. Now, go out there and do something inspiring.